don't know, Madin is Croatian. He's uh, native and uh, was seeking to do a church plant. Um, but the Lord had other plans to, for him to take on pastoral work at uh, an evangelical church in the city of Vrazden, and that's where he is now. And so the church is in no way able to support him in any full-time sense, but is increasingly committed to taking that on. And, um, and so in time, our hope would be that they actually would carry all of uh, his support, that it wouldn't be something that was entirely dependent upon us, but there's no hurry for that. Um, from our perspective. Also, um, there was something else, but I forget. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Oh, the hindrance to getting modern here has just been, you know, European travel and COVID and issues surrounding that. So it's kind of on the, on the radar screen, but just postponed indefinitely. Well, as you're turning to Luke 21... Um, remember, we're kind of reading these events that surrounding what we often think of as the end times. And um, the end times have fascinated us and intrigued us, sometimes irritated us, sometimes divided us, you know, across the Church of Jesus Christ. And they've at times fueled speculations and curiosities, and at other times fueled just dogmatism that was unhealthy. And um, oftentimes in dealing with this, there's a lot of pride for whatever reason. You know, it's like we, we find the least clear teaching in Scripture, think our answer is for sure, there's no possibility we could be wrong, and um, pride ourselves on it when it comes to some of these matters. And then cultivate all kinds of discord and alienation in the body of Christ. And, and in many ways, it's just unnecessary. And as we study this this morning, I want it to be different among us. I want it to be different among us. I want us to follow Scripture where it takes us. I want us to follow Scripture where it takes us. But I also don't want us to ever be the church that has all the answers. And especially when it comes to some of the passages of Scripture like we studied this morning, I want us to actually cultivate within the culture of our church a freedom to actually think about some of these things, these truths regarding um, history and these truths and their implications for the end of history. And so I want to work at cultivating such freedom myself. And um, to be honest, I mean... I think it would be unhealthy in a church if every time I preached, you walked away and just said, well, I don't agree with that. That probably wouldn't be good. But when you come to passages like this, um, I want there to be some freedom in you studying this for yourself and you considering uh, what you think the Scriptures teach. And if you come to a different conclusion than what I'm going to make an argument for this morning, um, that, I just want you to know that's totally okay. I'm like going with about 70%. 66% confidence in what I think um, this passage in Luke chapter 21 is teaching uh, this morning. So our, our context, our big picture, Israel expected the Messiah, right? Um, 
Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, who has come, but He's just not the Messiah they wanted. He is exactly the Messiah of the Old Testament, but remember, Israel has been rebelling against God and faithless and disobedient for generation upon generation upon generation. There's always been a remnant of faith, the faithful. Um, So I'm not saying there's no one, but on the whole... God's people, Israel, whom He delivered from the land of Egypt, have rejected Him. And so, of course, who the Old Testament says He is is not going to be who they find Him to be because they don't believe the Old Testament. And a lot of Jesus' work is coming and saying, no, you don't understand the Scriptures as they're written and what they are saying. And so, of course, they don't recognize the Messiah. They reject Him because Jesus requires repentance and faith. And the thing that the rebellious hate is repentance and faith. The thing that we often hate is repentance and faith. Israel hates repentance and faith. Jesus speaks with authority in understanding the Old Testament. And Israel hates His authority. And this is where you should be just thinking about yourself and saying, God, have mercy on because we are quick to judge Israel and quick to think that the church and I, we are the ones who have it right and we're the ones who are good and they were the ones who were bad and we just ought not to think such things. We ought to think we are the kinds of people who oftentimes hate repentance and faith. You know, once you get, start to get into the particulars of your obedience to Christ in very specific ways... You know, we can often fly by like in big generalizations, you know, like, yeah, I hate repentance and faith, (laughs) you know, but I mean, you really hate it and you need to know that about yourself and we should think God have mercy on me rather than despising Israel. We're really just merely a branch of Israel anyways by the mercies of God. Jesus has loved them. He's given them every opportunity for repentance. He's healed the sick. He's set the captives free. He's restored sight to the blind. He's come for the sinners that He came for. Not for the righteous, but for the sick. He's been everything that the Old Testament said He would be. He came into His own and His own received Him not. And in the more immediate context now, this is the final rejection of him and his rejection of Israel. And with that rejection, the pronouncement of the judgment that's coming upon them in line with the Old Testament prophets, similar to Babylon, Assyria, etc. You know, bigger and smaller judgments, Jesus coming in the line of the prophets, telling them exactly what is coming upon them. We dealt with last week how in Luke 21, verses 5 through 24, is not future prophecy about the end of history and the second coming of Christ. It's about the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, just very similar. It's eerily similar. Read Jeremiah chapter 4 this week. In fact, read the beginning of Jeremiah, just through maybe chapter 6. And just Jeremiah is prophesying about Babylon, 
just read how eerily similar what Jesus is saying here to the judgment of Jerusalem is when Babylon comes, especially Jeremiah chapter 4. Eerily similar. But we dealt with, uh, in, and so it just shouldn't be a shocking thing for us to think this is something that actually was fulfilled in history. You know, in, the, in kind of the milieu in which we live, all of, you know, Bible prophecy, we always think about it as future. We always think about it as future, but in the line of Old Testament prophecy, that's just not the way we should think about all prophecy. You know, oftentimes even to just write a prophet just to be proved they were a prophet had to make a temporary prophecy. That had to come true to validate they were a prophecy for anything that would come beyond and, uh, and whether or not it should be relied upon. So... Luke 21, 5 through 24 is not future. It has nothing to do with us, right? Because Jesus is talking to the disciples in the first century about events that would take place in the first century. And what happens is there's, in boiling it down quickly, there's a Jewish revolt against Rome. Um, Rome kind of comes in, you know, uh, then they back off. The Jews actually chase them down, thinking... You know, they're finally going to be delivered from Rome. And what happens is in that Jewish revolt where they chase Rome down and actually win a significant victory against Rome, what then happens, you know, geopolitically is now Rome brings in the fullness of force and sieges Jerusalem, starves them out over a period of four years from 66 to 70 A.D. and destroys them. And every stone, just as Jesus said, in the temple was not left one upon another. There is no temple. It will never be built again. And so Luke 21, verses 5 through 24, Jesus is telling that this is what's coming. And the outline was it has nothing to do with you, right? (laughs) And then it has everything to do with you. And it has everything to do with you because remember the Christians weren't there. Once the army surrounded Jerusalem, Christians fled just as Jesus told them to do in verse 20 and verse 21. They were gone, right? And then uh, in verse 24, they will fall, Israel, the Jews, by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. Horrific, horrific event. You can read about it if you want to read about it in Josephus' writing. You can probably Google search for Josephus' writing. He's got several volumes and is a great historian, a well-respected historian. But he's not a Christian, and that's important for you to understand. He's just recounting the events. He's not defending what Jesus said here. He's just recounting the events of what happened. And he suggests a million people were in Jerusalem. Um, Over a million, maybe, were in Jerusalem at the time of their judgment. A hundred thousand carried off into slavery. You know, who knows how many hundreds of thousands slaughtered. Obviously, every single person didn't die. It's not like, you know... Jewish people weren't wiped off the face of the earth, but just a tremendous judgment of God, horrifying and terrible. And then we come to verse 25. And if last week was a sticky wicket, this is a stickier wicket. This is a stickier wicket. And so let's read this, uh, verses 25 through verse 38, and then see if we can... Uh, make some sense of this. Verse 25, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. 
Don't think about the world like the modern world all the time. Don't always think about it like that. You have to think about the ancient world, you know, the world of the Roman Empire primarily. The inhabited world, you know, of the ancient world. What is coming on the world? For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Notice the parallel between your redemption is drawing near and then a parable about the fig tree. You know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves. Jesus never stops warning his disciples. Never stops warning. But watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day He was teaching in the temple. But at night He went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to Him in the temple to hear Him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would give us humility in passages of Scripture like this. Thank You, Father, that we have good reason to have humility in passages of Scripture like this in the, in the culture and love of our church. We do pray that you would help us to follow Scripture where it takes us and also to carry uh, passages like this with a little bit of an open hand about us. Father, we don't want to react to those who uh, seem to have all the answers in a wrong way and have all the answers in a different wrong way. And so protect us from these things. And, oh God, as we think about how all of this pictures the um, coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to conquer and to judge with an iron fist and with flame of fire to cast His judgment finally upon the earth and the end of history. May You cause us to be watchful and found praying when He comes. Help us, Father, to understand Your truths here, to think carefully, to think wisely, and with love. May these kinds of truths never be what divides us in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's much easier to make the case that verses 5 through 24 are about the judgment of Jerusalem than it is to make the case that um, what follows in the rest of the chapter is also about the judgment of Jerusalem. Okay. I will say this. Um, I want to argue that all of Luke chapter 21 is actually about the judgment of Jerusalem and of the temple, okay? 66% confident, okay? If you think that this is the second coming and you have reason to think that this is the second coming, and I do I did read good and reasonable arguments 
before this being the second coming. It wasn't like, uh, I think there's a lot of bad argument on verses 5 through 24 trying to make it future. A lot of really bad argument out there. There are some good reasons and good argument for thinking that this is the second coming. So it is a very reasonable conclusion. It definitely is the majority conclusion um, in the church and in good churches and in churches with sound doctrine. Um, it, is, it is generally the majority conclusion, and, uh, and that's okay. But I'm going to argue that this is actually all uh, pertaining to the events surrounding the first century. And so I believe that Luke 21 is fulfilled in the first century in real history. I don't believe that verses 25 through 28 are the second, uh, second coming of Christ Um, as we normally think about the second coming of Christ to conquer and judge the living and the dead. Okay? say, how could you say that? It's so clear. Look at all the stuff in there. Well, I'll make my case, okay? I'll make my case. Bear with me for a second. I'm not denying the second coming of Christ. All right? But before I make my case uh, that I'm about uh, 64% confident of, let me say a few things. The Westminster Confession of Faith, when you think about the Westminster Divines, first of all, most of us don't know anything about the Westminster Divines or the events surrounding the Westminster Confession of Faith. These weren't even things that ever came up in seminary, though I, it's like, why were these not things that came up in seminary? I don't know. But um, we usually kind of think about, you know, doctrinal confessions and, you know, and creeds and people who formed them as just kind of rigid and uh, maybe cold and just... You know, they just outlined it, and but you just shouldn't think about the Westminster Divines like that. There's actually this great statement in chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it says this, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. You know, so here you have you know, some of our heroes of the faith coming together to summarize doctrine and actually, but still with humility, actually making an honest concession that not all scripture is alike plain. In other words, some passages of scripture are just a little tougher to get your mind around than other passages of scripture. And then he, so, and then he says, nor alike clear unto all. You know, that's why, um, Oftentimes when I'm reading, and I'm sure I've done this before and I'm guilty of it, but when I'm reading commentaries and stuff, and they use the word clearly, and I just go, ah, I don't think that's as clear to me as it is to you, you know? It's not as, that, that, that way of thinking about this passage is not as clear as you're using the word clearly for. And that's what the Westminster Divines recognized when they wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. Every passage of Scripture is not as plain in comparison, and they're not alike clear unto all, meaning there will be some variance in interpretation, and this will just be the way it is until Jesus comes. So, I also want to say this. We don't need uniformity in our church on Luke 21, 25 through 28 specifically. We don't need uniformity of agreement. We just don't, right? I'm preaching, so I have to preach what I think about it, 
but we don't need uniformity on it. It's just not necessary. And especially when you're coming to one of those passages of Scripture that is very much not plain, like other passages of Scripture might be, and is very much not clear unto all, like maybe other passages of Scripture might be, uh, we, sh- we don't need to force the issue with an iron fist. We, we want you to have some freedom to think about these things. And the fact of the matter is I could be wrong. I could be wrong. In five years from now, I could be 47% committed to the other side. And I want to say again, I do believe there are a few good arguments for this being the second coming. Um, But I just think the biblical evidence on the whole, in this context in particular, tips the weight of the evidence. Right? And this is how you do Bible interpretation on difficult passages of Scripture. You're like, you, you go, okay, here's what Scripture says, and here's what Scripture says, and here's what Scripture says over here, and here's what it says over here, and here's the context I've got here, and I have all of these pieces of evidence, and I have pieces of evidence on this side of the coin for this being the first century. I have pieces of evidence on this side for it being the second coming, and sometimes it's a little bit of, uh, it's, it's a judgment call on which evidence weighs a little bit more than the other evidence. It's not like everything is just a slam dunk, 100%, clearly. It's not always like that. So what I'm saying is, I think the weight of the evidence tips to this side of the coin, and I'm going to argue why in just a moment. Here's what we must be, here's what you must be committed to. I'm not that concerned about, I'm not going to define these terms. If you want to understand what, the three major eschatological end times, end of last things positions are premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. If you want to understand what those are, I can, you know, send you off some things real quick that can give you a quick summary, and uh, you can kind of get your mind around that just a little bit very quickly. Um, but it doesn't matter. I ultimately don't think it matters that much what you choose. Uh, as you study scripture and think about those things in the life of our church. I just don't. Um, I know some, some churches will not agree with what I just said. They think it upsets everything in the body of Christ, and they think it's such a way to look at the Bible air, you know, and how to read your Bible air that they don't think you can live together if you have a different view of the last things. And personally, I think that's shameful. I think it's schismatic, and I think it's divisive, and I think it's completely unnecessary. And just doesn't bear the mark of Christian humility. It just doesn't bear the mark of Christian humility. Christians ought to be able to live together in a lot of things. I mean, the level of conflict that we ought to be able to forbear with one another that I don't think we've ever even come into and understood yet that we ought to forbear forbear with one another in, just as in the nature of being a Christian family. Um, And the endurance and forbearing love that we would have to have through countless kinds of things that can happen in the life of a church family. And um, ultimately, these things aren't going to change our obedience that much. They might some, depending on where we land on some of these things, but not that much. Okay? So, um, I don't even think that um, 
at the elder level that every, every elder and pastor has got to agree and think the same about some of these things for us to work together and have unity and have love and uh, to worship Christ and serve him together. So um, I'm even going to say this. Here's an implication. I actually believe we should change our doctrinal statement on this point where it very specifically says premillennialism because I don't think we have to be committed to that in order to uh, for someone to come into the membership of our church. Frankly, that's not the way it is in our church anyways. <laughs> it's not like everybody who came into our church is premillennial, you know. Um, and I don't think we need to have that in order to distinguish between who might lead in our church. You know, it's typical for a church, right, for the higher level of kind of responsibility you have in the life of the church, the more agreement you need to have on the in the in the doctrine of the church in order to have unity in the life of the church. But when it comes to this issue, I just think it's unnecessary. As long as no one makes it their hobby horse and everyone carries a little bit of a sense of, I actually could be wrong about this because there are challenging passages of Scripture for every position and every way to think about this. Um, I just don't think we actually need to have that in our doctrinal statement as something that everyone has to be committed to. So my suggestion is we drop that word as a particular commitment. What we do have to have to be orthodox is a commitment to the return of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. Orthodox is, right, the commitment to what is accepted as the historic Christian faith. To be orthodox, you have to, under, you have to be committed to. There is a second coming of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. That's what a church has to believe and be committed to. The particular details and, and the, the things that surround those events and exactly how it's going to go down, there's variance, but the variance does not make you not orthodox. Okay? Which means you're, it's, you're not thinking things that are not Christian because there's disagreement about exactly how all the events of the end are going to go down. Okay? Some will treat you like you're not orthodox. You know? I mean, some, to some, is if you're not, if you don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you're pretty much as good as a liberal. That's the point where they draw the line on liberalism. Honestly. This is, this is pretty common in our Christianity in America. And I just think that's horrific. It's just horrific. It's an awful way to think about these particular doctrinal realities and the nature of Scripture. So, we must be committed to the second coming of Jesus. So, if this passage here isn't referring to the second coming of Jesus, you know, well, we have tons of passages that are much more clearly referring to the second coming of Christ. How about... Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered. See, we're talking about the coming of Christ and the judgment all together here. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Here we're talking much more, much more clearly about the advent of Christ and the judgment of the living and the dead. 
So we can't deny that. We cannot deny that. But I still think the answer to the questions in verse 7 of chapter 21, and they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And what Jesus, what they're asking about is Jesus' comment before that, that not one stone will be left upon another. The judgment upon Jerusalem and the temple. That the rest of the context is an answer to that question, as well as, remember verse 32, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So, who is this generation? Well, I believe when Jesus speaks of this generation... In, well, I'm going to get to this in a second. Four reasons that I think that this is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the events surrounding it. Okay? Verses 25 through 28, fulfilled in the first century. Here's four reasons why. Because the language Jesus uses in this passage, in verses 25 and 26, is apocalyptic language. It's apocalyptic language. And we might use similar kinds of language when major, major cataclysmic events happen. You know, the world's never going to be the same. It's going to be different, you know, and things are turned upside down and chaos ensues. And we may use similar kinds of language, but this kind of language is not new for Jesus here in Scripture. This isn't something that, you know, Jesus came up with uniquely for this moment only to refer to his second coming. That's not what this language is actually used for uh, exclusively in Scripture at all. In fact, it would be very normal for Old Testament hearers like the disciples who he's talking about to hear this kind of language and not even think about a future coming of Christ to conquer and to judge. What would be more likely based on the way this language is used, and I'll give you several examples in a minute, but what would be more likely for an Old Testament hearer to think when they heard this language was, this is God bringing His judgment in a contemporary setting in time and in connection with the judgment of Jerusalem, this is the nature of the judgment uh, upon Jerusalem. It is completely world-changing, world-upsetting, chaos and so this would be normal for them to think this is the contemporary judgment of God upon Jerusalem. It's going to be bad for Jerusalem. This is going to be really bad for Israel. That would have been the more normal way they would have heard language spoken like this. And um, so here's, here's some examples. And I want to turn, I'm going to turn to each one just so that you can read. Uh, you don't have to go to We're going to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4, I'll just start reading in verse 23. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. Right, This is Babylon judging Israel, okay? I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. Creation is undone, essentially. Into the heavens, they had no light. I looked on the mountains, right? Okay, so when it says these things, the heavens had no light. Does that mean all the stars actually stopped shining and the sun actually stopped shining? No. Does it, when you see these things like stars fall from heaven, did the stars actually ever fall from heaven? No, it's not a glorified meteor shower that we're talking about. We're talking about the upsetting, the upsetting of creation 
because it's such a dramatic change to the world as we know it. To the heavens, they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and the hills moved to and fro. Right? Does this mean like if you would have actually looked at the hills, it, you just could have seen them dancing out on the horizon? That's not what it's talking about. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above are dark. be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back." hear that. The heavens above are dark, you know. The sun will lose its light. And when you read things like the moon will be turned to blood, well, does the moon actually get turned to blood? Well, of course not. Of course not. Ezekiel 32. This is actually... And remember this, what I'm saying, what I'm arguing is apocalyptic language was frequently used of contemporary judgments on the nations. Judgments from God upon the nations. That's what the, that's what the nature of this language bears out in the Old Testament. Listen now in Ezekiel 32. And so here it's actually Pharaoh in Egypt being judged by Babylon. Babylon, not judged by Babylon, judged by God. Babylon being the tool. Okay? Ezekiel 32, verse 7 When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Or Isaiah 13. I'm I'm just picking up a couple. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Now, So when you read verse 25, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. People are always fainting with fear and foreboding when the judgments of God are coming upon the world. I mean, all Israel, at the point where Rome is coming for them and they know it. But don't think about the world like Well, that's what was happening over in America during this time. Think about the inhabited world of the time, which is primarily the Roman Empire. So, some say, really the issue is this in verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So what is the coming of the Son of Man? That's really the question. That's being, that's being raised here. And what I'm arguing is that the coming of the Son of Man here in, in, in some sense is bound up with the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. First reason, because of the apocalyptic language that a normal Old Testament hearer would hear as a contemporary judgment of God upon the nations. A world-upsetting event. And 
um, and for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So, that's how an Old Testament hearer would hear this. I want to make note of this. The question is not this. I think that those who think and see language like this and just think, I should just take this literally, and they understand it in the most literal sense imaginable, stars falling from heaven, the sun dark, the moon actually turning to blood, you know, all of those kind of things actually just miss the point. Just entirely miss the point. Right? Because if you actually look at what Scripture says and how it uses this kind of language, that's not what happens. That's not what happens. Chaos ensues. The world, in some sense, in the middle of a judgment like this, becomes an uninhabitable chaos, undoing uh, the creative order because it's so chaotic. That's why Jeremiah 4 would say, the earth became without form and void. It's like a return to a pre-creation state. It's completely desolated, uninhabitable. And so when we see, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, it's not even necessary that in this context, when you see powers in the heavens shaken and you know stars and moon and darkness and all of these kinds of things that go with apocalyptic language, it's not even necessary that you understand that in this context, in the most literal sense. It doesn't mean there's not other times where it says this, that you don't, that you don't mean it in the literal sense, but here it's not necessary. Because Scripture speaks of God coming in judgment in ways that are not always in the literal sense of seeing Him. Read Habakkuk chapter 3. You have to read Scripture to see what I'm saying. Right? You've heard things, and you've heard people say things but you actually have to look at the way Scripture speaks. So, I'll go there real quick and I'll show you this because I know you don't believe me. Habakkuk chapter 3. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And you remember Habakkuk. God tells Habakkuk, <laughs> I wouldn't believe, you wouldn't believe it if you were, if you were uh, told. I'm bringing Babylon. You know, Habakkuk's like, how long are you going to let the wicked prosper? God's like, not very long. I'm bringing Babylon to judge Israel, right? That's the context. Okay? O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like a light. Rays flashed from His hand, and He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence, and plague followed His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. I saw the tents of Kishan and affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and ride. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave birth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows, they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. 
You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of those of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. Right? You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Right? Try to read that and think about what would be taking place if you just thought the way to understand this is just literal in every sense of the word. And here you have a speaking of God coming in judgment, but it's not a judgment. It's not the kind of coming where you actually are seeing God like we would see Christ in his coming in power and great glory at his return. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Let me continue on here. The first reason is these would be understood as contemporary judgments of God on the nations. In apocalyptic language, it was used normally for that scenario. We also would think that the second coming would have similar kind of language used for it too also. Okay. Here's the second reason. The very specific imagery here could is, is, is most closely tied to Daniel chapter 7. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The closest, ex- most exact reference to this phrase is actually found in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So what is this coming? I think Jesus is most likely calling to mind the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came, like, came one like a Son of Man. All right? Now, if you didn't know what was happening in the rest of that verse, you would immediately think, because of all the assumptions we've ever made about passages of Scripture like this, Oh, Daniel's actually prophesying of the second coming of Jesus at the end of the world. He's coming on the clouds of heaven. That means he's coming from heaven to earth to conquer and to judge. But that's not what's taking place here at all. Keep reading. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Now think about what is happening here in A.D. 70. Christ is resurrected. He is ascended. When he ascended, what happened? The ascension was his enthronement ceremony to the place of king of kings. What the destruction of Jerusalem is, is his his validation and vindication that what he said would come to pass and he actually has taken his seat to be the one who has dominion over all the earth, over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that he has taken his seat as the ruler of the nations and has come to Israel to completely level them. It's the beginning of the kingdom as would be realized and seen um, visibly in his act of rule and vengeance against Israel. All I'm saying is if you're going to assume that this is the second coming, you have to deal with why the most clearly, uh, Jesus is practically quoting Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If you were to read it in the Greek copy of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, it would be almost identical 
you have to deal with that reality. You can't just say, you can't argue like this. You can't just go, well, it's the second coming because. You have to deal with texts of Scripture that is very possible Jesus is referring to here to understand the reality of what's taking place. This is Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ destroying all of the temple and its rebellion, slaughtering the people for their generations-long rebellion after having been long patient with them and long merciful to them and long kind to them, Him being done and Him ruling. And that is a completely world-changing, cataclysmic, geopolitical, turning-over reality and contemporary judgment of the coming of God upon Israel to judge them, similar to the language that Habakkuk uses for a coming of God in judgment upon Israel. So, now when these things begin to take place, Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And someone says, well, your redemption is drawing near. That just sounds like second coming, but um, it could very well be the language here is funny enough to not sound like the second coming. Straighten up. You know, it's like Jesus is coming to conquer and the judge, judge and we're like, oh, yeah, hey, my redemption is drawing near right now. You know? could very much just be argued in the opposite direction. That's not actually what it's about. But look at the parallel. Jesus tells the parable of the fig tree, right? You see the fig tree. They told him, he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that the summer is already near. Right? All the signs are there. All the signs are there. The summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. This is the exaltation of Christ as King. His vindication that at the ascension he was enthroned as king, now waiting to see if his prophecy of Jerusalem would come true. In 87, it comes true. The kingdom of God is established and seen. And seen. And seen in his rule as judge, even over his own people. Okay. It's in parallel to your redemption is drawing near. I don't have a lot to say about that. Um, I do know that as the kingdom began to grow beyond AD 70, that the persecution of Christians actually lessened significantly. Because as you read the book of Acts, who's primarily persecuting the Christians? Rome? That's what we always think, right? We always think Rome, we think Nero, we think Rome was the one persecuting Christians primarily. But who is it? When you read your Bible, who's actually primarily persecuting Christians? It's the Jews. It's the Jews. That's why, that's why in a land like ours, where you have tons of false profession and tons of false shepherds, they're the ones who hate the faithful. It's the same idea. They're the ones who hate. Your persecution is going to come from within the professing church more so than oftentimes it's going to come from the culture. Same, same idea. So... I believe that what's happening here, the way that this is set up, the way Luke is setting this up, your redemption is drawing near, and then he tells the parable about the fig tree, that the kingdom of God is near, that those things are two in two parallel statements in the interpretation of this passage, that the kingdom of God is near. And 
the suffering, you know, just think, once Jerusalem was leveled and once, uh, um, once, the, once Jerusalem was judged and the temple was torn down, Christians had hundreds of years of pretty significant amounts of peace for the kingdom of God to grow and expand. Rather than the, you just think about them, okay? Think about, try to, try to, try to watch biblical patterns as they take place, right? This isn't that different from a Christian's perspective in relationship to the Jews. It would have been a deliverance for the Christians from the Jews when Jerusalem was judged. Just like it was a de- deliverance from, let's say, Egypt when, um, or a deliverance from Egypt when Israel left and Egypt was judged. Your redemption is drawing near. There's a there's a tremendous deliverance from Jewish persecution and opposition to the church of Jesus Christ and to the kingdom of God at the point where Jerusalem is destroyed and with God's judgment often brings at the same time salvation. Judgment for one, salvation for another. And I believe that's exactly what's happening here. Your redemption is drawing near. Salvation comes to those who are followers of Christ. A redemption that's near. Not doesn't, you don't always have to think about this in the final and fullest terms, like the second coming. This would have been a massive deliverance for Christians from the oppression of the Jews. Beyond that, it is the language of Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where Christ is now ruling and a kingdom is born and we are, for all the Christians who place their faith in Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation from this point forward, we are a part of it. And it has grown and expanded throughout the earth for 2,000 years. Just remarkable, remarkable the change. And this is exactly what says, right? If you go back, Jerusalem will be trampled into verse 24, underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are filled. The exaltation of Christ as king and a kingdom populated by all the peoples of the earth. Reason number three that I actually think that this is all in the first century and surrounding the events of the first century is this this pesky phrase that I've mentioned repeatedly in verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now, when the disciples heard Jesus say, this generation, this generation, this generation, what would they have heard? If somebody said that to you, what would you think? All, All, even those who disagree on the nature of maybe verses 25 through 28, Everyone understands the plain, the most simple way to understand the sense of this word is the very generation he's speaking to. Okay. So if you want to argue that this is the second coming, you've got to deal with this verse. You've got to come up with some other explanation than the most plain sense of it. And when you start to take steps away from the plainest sense of a verse, it doesn't mean you can't if there's other reason to understand it differently than what you might think it means, like this whole message. But you have to be less certain about it. 
you have to be less certain about it. Well, Jesus has used this generation several times actually in Luke's gospel already. Luke chapter 11, verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. Who is Jesus coming to condemn? He's coming to condemn the generation that is rejecting Him. So when he says this generation, he actually means this generation by which he came and they knew him not. They did not know the day of his visitation. This generation. So I think it's most likely, you know, those who would argue that this has to do with the second coming would maybe say verses 25 through 28 are the second coming, but then verses 29 through 33 actually return to the first century thinking, like verses 25 through 28 are kind of a parenthetical statement. Jerusalem, it's going to be like this also at the second coming. Now let's come back. You know, this generation will take place, the events of the first century, but not verses 25 through 28. That's okay. It's okay. Others get a little more squirrely and say, well, it's just talking about the generation who is around at the time of the second coming. But no hearer who actually heard Jesus say that would ever think that. It would never think that. Some say, well, it's, it's just, it's actually what Jesus is saying here. It's more just kind of general, the way the world works. God will be making judgments and, you know, um, and various generations are going to experience various kinds of suffering and judgments and kinds of things just as normally the way the world works. I think those are much harder to prove. Those are much harder to prove with Scripture. They're easy to prove with assumptions. <laughs> That's just what it means. They're harder to prove with Scripture. But then notice what Jesus says. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And eighty seventy was the proof that Jesus' words were ever true. And what he said was going to come to pass. And everything that he has ever said will come to pass, just as he said. So, all these things will take place within the lifetime of this generation is the only way I know how to understand that and to think biblically about the other pieces of the puzzle and think scripturally about the other pieces of the puzzle, but it's not unreasonable to to see them hearing things like apocalyptic language. In the same way, the Old Testament used apocalyptic language in the line of the prophets for contemporary judgments on the nations that left everything completely undone, like almost like creation was being undone. So severe is the judgment of God. Until one day, creation will be completely undone by the judgment of God, right? Reason number four. Wow, it's late. I gone this long? That's terrible. Final reason, Matthew and Mark both turn to the second coming. They both, I believe, Mark 13, Matthew 24 and 25, they deal with the same things. 
I believe that both of those passages of Scripture actually have a very specific turn where they turn from the events and the judgment of Jerusalem to the second coming of Christ. But of that day or hour, no one knows. And both of those passages, you can go back and look at them. Um, I believe they both make a turn, but Luke doesn't make that turn. For some reason, Luke doesn't make that turn here. For some reason, Luke wants to vindicate Christ to his audience, to his Gentile audience, that what Jesus says comes to pass, and, you know, when it comes to pass, they will see it. And it will give them confidence that Christ is king and judge, and that they need to repent and believe the gospel. All of the Gentiles who he was focused on speaking to, in particular Theophilus, way back at the beginning, you know? Remember, Luke's writing to Theophilus. We talked about that like six years ago. Why does it even matter? Why does this even matter? Why does this even matter? Well, one reason why it does matter is, is because people criticize Scripture. Here's what, here's what those who criticize Scripture say. They say, see, Jesus said, Scriptures actually take, or scholars sometimes take Jesus at his words. This generation, all this will take place, you know, in this generation. And, and then they look at verses 25 through 28, and they say, but the second coming didn't come in this generation. So Jesus is a liar. But if it all takes place in the first century, that's just a non-issue. It's just a non-issue. And so Jesus' truthfulness isn't in question, and the truthfulness of the scriptures isn't in question. Ultimately, ultimately, what matters when we're coming to Bible prophecy and when we're dealing with it is not how it all fits together. Jesus' concern is your life. Always. And we never want to consider our life before the judgments of God. We just want to kind of be fascinated by the things that surround them. And this is why always Jesus comes back to verse 34, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down, you know, numbed down, numbed down with dissipation and drunkenness, just, just wild, debauched living, drunkenness. I hope you're being careful about your consumption of alcohol. I hope that you're not the only person who knows what you drink and how much you drink when you drink alcohol because the drinking of alcohol is a dreadful danger. Sure, God has given wine to gladden the heart of man, and every good gift is dangerous, and alcohol is terribly dangerous. And, it, and your consumption of alcohol needs to actually be under discipline. The consumption of alcohol in a church ought to be something that we discipline like everything else. Watch yourselves. With dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, not just wild living, but don't let just the normal, ordinary things that are happening in life numb your heart down. It's, you know, it's like being a mom, right? And the chaos of being a mom, right? When you have a bunch of kids, chaos is just part of what it is. It just is. Right? Or, you know, owning a home or mowing your lawn or, you know, whatever, serving in the church, just the normal, ordinary things that are happening in this life. It's not don't do them. That's not Jesus' point. His point is, live in the fear of God with all that is this life. So as you're husbanding in the fear of God, 
That's the point. Don't just get numbed down and be concerned about it and neglect and forget who God is and that Jesus is coming to judge. Right? This is what he's saying to them. Like, this is getting ready to take place. And that's what ultimately the application will be for us. But stay awake. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. You get it. Stand with me for prayer. Father, thank you for your truth. Lord, help us just not to hold too tightly to some of these things, even if we argue for them. To not disparage what is not worthy to disparage in your church. Help us to live in unity and love as we think about Scripture. And, and I do pray that our church, from this message, would wrestle with Scripture. And I pray that we wouldn't run to all of our loyal, popular celebrity allegiances for answers. And I pray that you would wrestle with passages of Scripture as we think about these things. And I pray more than anything, rather than trying to now respond and wonder if what I have said is true, that we would actually watch ourselves. And be careful before the very judgment of Jesus Christ when he comes with all the holy angels to separate the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the wicked. That we might be found enduring all the things that would take place before his coming trials of life, the persecutions of being a Christian, embracing the costs of following Christ and their difficulty, the great burdens of just living in a sin-cursed world. May we be found praying, ready to stand before the Son of Man when He comes. And Lord Jesus, we do long for You to come. In Your name we pray. Amen.